Memphis school security procedures prevent a mass shooting. Plus, National Review's Charles Cook on the courts dismantling President Biden's gun agenda. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Uh, this week, we are going to be discussing President Biden's gun agenda and sort of the last domino to fall in it with a recent ruling out of the Fifth Circuit, where a panel decided that the pistol brace ban the president um, asked for from the ATF is likely unlawful. And to do that, we have somebody who can speak to both the legal aspect of this and the political aspect of it. Uh, National Review's Charles Cook. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you doing this. I think some, you know, when I want to talk about uh, the political and legal side of, of firearms, you're the person I think of uh, first. So I'm glad you're able to, to join us this week. Um, you, you saw this ruling come down where the Fifth Circuit panel said essentially the ATF violated the Administrative Procedure Act and that its rule sort of reclassifying all guns that have pistol braces on them as unregistered short barrel rifles, you know, something that has very serious consequences, right? A federal felony, up to 10 years in prison, huge fines if you don't register these things, that that's not lawful. What, what's your make of that decision? Well, I think it's of a piece with the general approach to firearms law and the law in general that the Biden administration has been taking for a long time, especially since 2022, when the Democrats lost control of the House. It's telling that these cases are not in the main being struck down on Second Amendment grounds, although Justice Willett in the Fifth Circuit did write separately to say he suspects there could be a successful Second Amendment challenge to this pistol brace rule. They're being struck down on separation of powers grounds. Now, of course, your listeners will know this, but it's worth recalling, nevertheless, that the Constitution in Article 1 places all legislative power, that's the language, all legislative power, in Congress, not in the president. The president, outside of the realm of foreign policy, has no free-floating domestic political power. Anything that he does has to come with the permission of Congress. Congress has not given President Biden permission to change any of the gun laws uh, in the last year, not in the realms that he wants to change the gun laws. And so... Uh, those laws stay where they are. So instead of getting congressional acquiescence, he has tried to use the executive branch and reinterpret the laws, I would say twist the laws, to uh, get the results that he would like to achieve by Congress but can't. So what we have seen here uh, is a series of decisions made by the executive branch that clearly have no basis in the underlying statutes Uh, and that has been uh, struck down by the courts because the courts are full of judges who can read the law and its plain meaning uh, and um, its terms of art. So, you know, this one is a good example of it, this pistol brace issue. It could be, I think it probably wouldn't be, but it could be constitutional for Congress to ban pistol braces or at least to redefine where they sit in the regulatory scheme but it didn't. The notion that pistol braces uh, alter in a material way the nature of a firearm such that it becomes an item regulated under the National Firearms Act or becomes prohibited entirely is ridiculous. Um, So that's the context. You've got a president who cannot get what he wants through Congress and is as a result trying to redefine it. Now, uh, before we move on, the Administrative Procedure Act part is important because uh, it is not the case Uh, that the executive branch is able to, on the fly, redefine federal law. It was the case during the New Deal for a while, uh, and it caused regulatory chaos. 
I have personal uh, objections to much of the way the New Deal empowered the executive branch, but those aside, to rein in the president, the Congress in, I think, 1946, 1948, passed this law, the Administrative Procedure Act. And what it basically says is that if the executive branch wishes to redefine what terms mean or make substantive changes to the law based on its reading of a congressional statute, it has to do so over a longer period of time with a public comment period, giving warning to all involved and justifying itself. Um, the uh, presidents since that time have never particularly liked this because it's there to stand in the way, put sand in the gears. Um, you may remember during the Trump administration, Donald Trump was, was uh, reprimanded a few times by the courts for not following the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, it turns out that uh, Joe Biden doesn't like it any more than Trump did. That's one reason among many his student loan plan was, was struck down. Um, yes. And he's now running into issues with this, with, with his, uh, his gun policy as well. So ultimately, what we're looking at here is a series of defeats that are the product not of Second Amendment determinations, but of separation of powers. Yeah, <clears throat> certainly. And, uh, and I do. And I want to focus on that a little bit more. But first, I want to talk just uh, just a touch on why the court felt that the Administrative Procedure Act was violated by the ATF in this case, because, you know, the ATF did go through the rulemaking process, right? They had a they put out a proposal for this rule. They had a public comment period. They got a lot of very negative comments. I think it was uh, it may have set the record for the most ne negative comments that a, a rule proposal has ever received in the public, uh, the Federal Register. But um, regardless, they, uh, you know, at least on the surface, and I'm sure the DOJ has argued this, that they did follow the Administrative Procedure Act. But the panel found that actually, in practice, they didn't. And one of the big problems they had, um, and you kind of see this across all of these recent uh, gun rules that the Biden administration has either defended or put in place themselves, but the ATF has been pretty inconsistent and uh, contradictory even at times in how they've looked at all of these issues. And, uh, and in this case, the panel said that the proposed rule that they put out for public comment that they notified uh, people about was so different from the actual final rule that effectively undid all of this work that they had put in. Yeah. So uh, administrative law can get quite complicated. But one of the rules that has developed both as a result of the text of the Administrative Procedure Act and also the way in which courts have interpreted and enforced it is that it is not sufficient to follow the terms of the Administrative Procedure Act in a pro forma way. What you can't do is say, here is a rule that we wish to make we will be taking your comments. Thank you for your comments. We're ignoring them. You, you, you can't just <laughs> right. collect 500,000 comments, throw them in a trash can and say, we're doing it anyway. You have to absorb them, show that you have acknowledged them and respond. The other thing you can't do, as you say, is say, we're going to pass rule A. Then when rule A invites all sorts of uh, co specific uh, comment, um, say, and here's rule B. <laughs> you know, there okay. has to be some material connection between rule A and B. And from what I can see, uh, the Biden administration, it was guilty of both of those infractions in that the, the final uh, rule did not resemble the one that it had put into the system. And it tried to shortcut uh, the response and comment uh, part uh, of the process. Um, now, you know, it's worth saying as, as more context that in one sense, this is inevitable because the underlying statutes that the Biden administration is trying to use here uh, in the various cases that it's litigated quite clearly do not do or say or allow what it's trying to achieve. And that's because although I, I, you know, one could like it or dislike it, federal firearms law is pretty well written. It's quite uh, closely parsed textually. And whatever uh, blood could be wrung out of the stone by those who wish to amend it without Congress, 
has already been wrung out. You know, we, we, we're talking here very often about laws that, while they may have been amended around the edges, are very old. The 1934 National Firearms Act, the 1968 Gun Control Act, the Brady Act of 1993. You know, the youngest of the ones I just mentioned, that's 30 years old. Lawyers have had a lot of time to pour through these statutes and try to change them and try to alter their definitions, try to get gun control or, or obviate gun control without the permission of Congress. You know, 30 years, uh, what is that? That's 55 years. And then you've got nearly 90 years uh, to do this. So when the Biden administration is advancing these ideas, whether it's uh, defending the bump stock ban that Donald Trump initiated, whether it's this this uh, uh, pistol brace um, ban, whether it's uh, the ghost gun regulations. They're doing so with text uh, that has been largely static and is quite closely written. And that means that it is far more likely that a court is going to look at its behavior um, and determine that it hasn't either met the statutory threshold or complied with the administrative law, because uh, you're not talking about uh, a an area where the lawyers on both sides and the courts and their clerks and the amicus briefs, you know, are dealing with a, an idea that had never been thought of before. With take the student loan case. Now, I was outspoken on that. I won't go into the detail, but the Heroes Act of 2003 probably was never mentioned again by anyone in American politics between one minute after it passed in 2003 and the day the Biden administration said he was going to do student loan relief with it. You know, suddenly everyone had to become a Heroes Act expert. That's just not true of the US code in relation to firearms. We all know what it says. We all know its provisions. And um, Biden is is running up against a brick wall because of that. Mm, yeah. And I, and I think it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, as you say there, the, the text of these laws that they're trying to reinterpret uh, are, are, are pretty static. They haven't really changed much in decades. But the ATF's in, uh, attempts to interpret them and apply them have definitely been all over the place, right? I mean, the big, the big critique that you see in in this ruling for the pistol brace rule uh, or ban is that they put in uh, in their proposed rule a a point system where you could, uh, you know, they still have plenty of cr criticisms over it that there were still a lot of sort of subjective measures involved in this point system, but that you know there was some way you could look at the gun you have and try to determine whether or not it even fit under this proposed rule about what you know is classified as a as a SBR and what's just a regular firearm and um and then they just removed that altogether from the final rule and and of course before the rule was even proposed the ATF had been sort of all over the place on the legality of pistol braces or the, the legal standing of them First saying, yeah, uh, these these are not stocks. They're not designed and intended to be shouldered, which is the key provision uh, separating a short barrel rifle from a uh, uh, that's regulated by the National Firearms Act from a firearm that's not regulated by the the National Firearms Act. And and then they would they sort of change that interpretation. They said touching it to your shoulder is a redesign. Uh, then they said it wasn't. And then they put through this rule and then the rule changed. And you see this over and over again with all three of these examples, right? Uh, and I think that's why um, perhaps the, the more fertile ground in challenges for these has been over administrative powers um, and uh, as well as, uh, you know, sort of the rule of lenity, which which talks about, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, giving the benefit of the doubt to the person charged with a crime over the government if it's unclear what a statute actually says or how an agency has interpreted it. Uh, do, you know, is that what you find looking at this, that that's perhaps why these challenges have been about procedures or agency power instead of uh, Second Amendment? cases under Bruin? Well, yes, in that, as I say, you've seen a long train of attempts and therefore it's unlikely the latest one is going to succeed and therefore it's more likely that the executive branch is going to skip 
stages. I mean, a good example of this, I know you want to talk about this separately, is this phrase engaged in the business in mm. uh, federal law that determines who is and who is not obliged to become a federal firearms license which might be the next uh, that seems like that might be the next thing that the biden administration tries to uh, make a rule about right now the the interesting thing about that language i think it was two interesting things that underscored just how difficult this is for the executive branch and, and should be under our system of government the first one is that president biden if he does indeed propose a rule here which he suggested that he was going to a few months ago would not be the first president to do this you know the obama administration tried the same thing this was the the big announcement they made when they became frustrated that they couldn't convince congress to change the law the obama administration uh, issued press releases president obama himself made speeches they looked into whether or not they could materially alter uh, the definition of who is and who is not obliged to become an FFL. Uh, so did the Clinton administration. This is a well to which Democratic administrations have returned over and over again. Uh, Ironically, they're kind of going in the opposite directions because Clinton wanted to force yes. uh, people to stop being so-called kitchen table dealers and Obama wanted to force people to become FFLs. That's right. Um, That's so right. But, but they're, they're all trying to manipulate to their own ends the, the same piece of language. Um, and then the second uh, reason it's interesting is that this language was actually changed, albeit in a very minor sense, yep. uh, with the bipartisan gun control bill that was passed was it last year, the yep, year before, last, last year. year. June 2020. Yeah, June uh, 2022. Um, but not in a way <laughs> that allows the Biden administration uh, to do what it currently wants to do. So on that one, the Biden administration wants what he calls universal background checks. Your listeners want to know what that means. There is nothing in federal law that permits the federal government to impose universal background checks. Some states have them, other states do not. Uh, the Brady Act did not extend to non-commercial intrastate transfers of firearms, the same rules as apply to FFLs. Uh, my reading of that history is that that was a deliberate attempt to keep the bill within the federal government's explicitly enumerated powers. Others have said it was a, a quirk of drafting or an oversight, but whatever it was, the law is really clear on this. And this has upset two American presidents in a row. Bill Clinton, towards the end of his presidency, did want to move towards so-called universal background checks after Columbine because there was this obsession with, with gun shows. But it was really too late by the time that he took that up. But Barack Obama was obsessed with this. This was the holy grail of gun control for Barack Obama. Uh, was not a ban on so-called assault weapons, although he did later come to favor that, but was so-called universal background checks. And he couldn't find a way of changing the law. Joe Biden got Congress to change some of the ancillary terms within that provision in federal law. And still, there is obviously no way um, of him doing it. So what did he promise to do? Well, I don't know what he's going to do in practice, but what he promised to do a few months ago was to get as close as he could to universal background checks by redefining this measure. Now, you ask, well, why is this... Um, why has the fight in the courts been mostly over statutory language and the Administrative Procedure Act and not the Second Amendment? Well, the answer is that we've never got to the Second Amendment portion of these fights. We've never got to the merits. If Congress passed a bill uh, that imposed universal background checks, then the case would be on the constitutional merits only. That would be the only question that was put before the courts. Is the federal government allowed to bind the states in this way, uh, in, in circumstances in which there is no interstate commerce? And is it a violation of the Second Amendment? That's what would go to the court. But with this case, the first question you have to ask was, well, was the president allowed to do this in the first place? And the answer right. to that just always seems to be no. Um, 
So, you know, that's why we haven't got to these Second Amendment challenges, because the means by which these ideas are being tried uh, is um, a, a, a violation of Article 1. Yeah, I mean, it does It does read, if you go, especially if you go through the latest ruling, like these are just sort of the easier claims to win at this point, because uh, they, I mean, I think this this panel basically said we can decide this on APA. We don't even need to go to right. the Second Amendment claims. Uh, you know, they, they were mentioned, they were brought in in that case, and they were mentioned by the concurrence from Willett, as you, as you noted earlier. But uh, the panel just said, we don't even need to go there because the easier path is just to say, is just to point out that this doesn't work under uh, the, the agency's authority granted by the APA. So, um, I mean, that, that does seem like the bottom line, right? That these orders are weak enough, at least, at least according to Fifth Circuit judges, a lot, all these rulings have come out of uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, in particular. But um, well, you, you uh, all those Sixth Circuit, Circuit did. And you'll yeah. get, you will get people who will say, well, it's forum shopping. And the Fifth Circuit is particularly likely to strike down this sure. sort of rule. Uh, there is some truth to that, but I do think it's worth pointing out that it, during the Trump administration, Chief Justice John Roberts became a stickler for compliance with the Administrative Procedure Act. And mm. uh, under both the Trump and the Biden administrations, the Supreme Court has been really intolerant of executive action that cannot be uh, substantiated by the statutes uh, that are being statutes that, that are being used. So um, while it may be the case that the Fifth Circuit is more likely than, say, the Ninth Circuit uh, to uh, agree with the plaintiffs, we're talking about the Supreme Court in all of these cases, ultimately, and the Fifth Circuit is actually closer to where the Supreme Court is than many of the other circuits, which is sort of a good early warning mechanism. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that analysis, too. And, and I, sh I should mention that the, the Sixth Circuit also struck down right. the, the bump stock ban under the uh, same basic concerns as the Fifth Circuit anyway. And it is interesting, too, uh, to, to see what you noted there that, uh, you know, we obviously on this show, we talk a lot about the Supreme Court and how it views the Second Amendment. And that's been an especially hot topic since Bruin was handed down last year for obvious reasons. But uh, the other noticeable trend from the court is that they are very skeptical of agency overreach. And um, so these cases and we're as we're filming this, we're still waiting for the Supreme Court to hand down its decision on whether or not it's going to intervene on an emergency basis in the ghost gun case. Uh, we don't have that news yet. Uh, we hopefully will by the time we get to our news update when we film that later today. But because um, we're filming on Friday here. But, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like these cases all have a a really good chance of, of standing up these, the, the, the reasonings used by these judges in the fifth circuit, if they do end up at the, the Supreme court, do you think that's accurate? I think that's accurate, especially since last year, because there's been two developments in our jurisprudence over the last three years, both of them salutary for advocates of the right to keep and bear arms. One of them, as you say, is that the, Supreme Court has become less and less tolerant of executive overreach. And you've seen this with the growth of the major questions doctrine and uh, of a stickler approach to the Administrative Procedure Act. And then on the Second Amendment, we've seen Bruin. Bruin has changed the game in ways that are not yet completely obvious, but it raised the bar that Heller had left quite low. And one of the problems with Heller was that there was no standard of review. Uh, the instructions contained no real analytical framework for lower courts to use. And as a result, many lower courts simply continued as if Heller had never happened after McDonald had incorporated it to the states. Bruin, uh, with a, a conscious and explicit admonition from Clarence Thomas, ended that practice. Uh, and it instituted a comprehensible standard, which is the existence of a historical analog. Um, it made it clear the Second Amendment's not a second-class right, uh, and it instructed uh, the lower courts to um, adhere to its guidelines instead of ignoring them. Um, so you've now got uh, lower courts that are aware that the Supreme Court is unlikely to tolerate executive branch shenanigans and uh, that the 
Supreme Court is serious about enforcing the Second Amendment. And I think those two things in concert have made it a much better environment for those of us who think that the Second Amendment deserves to be upheld in the same way as would any other part of the Constitution. Hmm. And so that's that's sort of the legal side of all this, right? What about the political side? You know, obviously, we are in an extremely unique and novel uh, political environment right now with uh, former President Trump being charged by current President uh, Biden's DOJ for uh, a litany of things we don't need to necessarily litigate here beyond saying that it's obviously not a normal cycle. Um, uh, you know, former President Trump is still leading in the, the primary polls um, across the Republican uh, primary spectrum here. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, it is difficult to obviously apply your sort of traditional political analysis to all this stuff. But I would imagine, though, that having uh, your entire gun agenda that you've implemented since becoming president tossed by the courts is not going to be very helpful for you in a reelection. I mean, is that am I far off there? Do you how, where, where do you see this all playing out politically? I think that's essentially right. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I think it's right because Biden has essentially poked a section of the electorate that really cares about the Second Amendment without getting anything for it. So the counter argument would be that he would be able to run against the courts, he would be able to run against Bruin, he would be able to run against Trump and the Republican Senate of 2018 to 2020 that appointed so many uh, conservative judges and say, look, all of this gun control that you want is being stopped by extremists. But I don't think that's right. A couple of reasons. First off, the changes that he has tried to make are incomprehensible to most people. We're not talking here about some obvious or self-evident policy where the public divides. Whether or not to reclassify pistol braces, whether or not ghost guns count, as, <laughs> uh, what, uh, if this is indeed the next one, what engaged in the business means. I mean, yes, there are ways to spin those, but you end up in most cases sounding like a fool when you do it. If you really try to tell people that pistol braces make firearms more dangerous, you lose as many, if not more, people than than you gain. So there's right, no because, um, because most people don't know <laughs> what a pistol brace well, is. Well, they don't know what one is, but they also know after about seven seconds of explanation that it obviously doesn't make the gun more dangerous. Sure, um, but and also the people who do know what a pistol right. brace is, and, and that's what I was going to say. Is and that's the problem is that you you therefore you don't bring too many people over on your side or get them particularly mm. wound up against these fictional enemies that are rewriting the constitution and all of that nonsense. But you do annoy all of the people who have pistol braces, and you do annoy people who make guns at home, and you do annoy people who are dispensing with their late father's gun collection, and you annoy people um, who had bump stocks. Um, and yes, there aren't that many uh, of those people relative to the population at large, but when you tell those people, as the Biden administration did, that not only is it inventing out of whole cloth a new definition of words that have been in the statute book for decades, but that those who uh, are unaware of the change or weren't expecting the change are retroactively in violation of the law and are potentially yeah. guilty of a felony, you really annoy those people. And mm, they go yeah. out and they vote against you. And, you know, I, I think this has been, as you say, a, a net drag on, on, on Biden, and he's got nothing to show for it either way. Mm. The other complicating factor here, too, is that obviously one of these rules that we're talking about, the one that kind of set up the other two, was put in place by uh, former President Trump. Sure. And he has, in fact, gone out on the campaign trail and defended it as the right thing to do. Uh, now, it seems, you know, if you're looking at it from 10,000 feet, it's fairly obvious who uh, I would imagine most gun owners are going to say is more on their side in this fight. But uh, that that is something that does color it a bit, right? I mean, he he created the 
the first attempt to manipulate the law in this way to ban a, a, a firearm accessory. And Biden kind of just copied him mm -hmm. and a number, you know, for these these preceding rules. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What do you make of all that? Well, look, as you know, I have no brief for Donald Trump whatsoever, and I profoundly hope that he's not the Republican nominee. Uh, so I say this not to defend Trump, but just to analyze the landscape. Honestly, sure. I think the problem for Biden is that he is also in favor of the bump stock ban. So mm -hmm. if the election yeah. comes down to Biden versus Trump, it. then the pro-gun voter who is considering which candidate to vote for is going to say, well, I'll vote for the guy who didn't do all the rest of the stuff, who isn't calling for an assault weapons ban, who isn't calling for universal background checks, who isn't vilifying gun owners, who isn't making weird comments about fighting American people with F-15s. If the question yeah, is, yeah. who is better on the Second Amendment, say, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, or right. Donald Trump or Tim Scott, are like, yeah, I think Donald Trump deserves to own the decision that he took, uh, which wasn't just a, a, a decision that, that implicated the Second Amendment, but as we've been saying, that made many of the same executive overreach mistakes that, that um, we've been criticizing Biden for. Um, and was found it, unconstitutional for the same race, the same reason. Right, exactly. So I mean, yeah. I, I say that in no way to defend Donald Trump or his decision, but I suspect that yeah. that when, if and when they're, they're obliged to choose between Trump and Biden, that Biden will have made it very clear which side he stands on in general, and therefore yeah. make that decision an easy one for most most pro gun voters. Of course, not all seems to be overshadowed in the primary thus far. Uh, you know, because yeah, there was sort of a clear strategy by Ron DeSantis to try and get to the right of Trump on gun policy, but, uh, and on lots of different kinds of policy, right. But it just hasn't really paid off to this point yet. Uh, I mean, the race has really been taken over by the, obviously the charges filed against, uh, the former president in, you know, that's been the, the focal right. point and policy right. hasn't really been a huge point yet. Uh, you know, I, I, who knows what could happen from here? Like I said, it's a pretty completely unprecedented situation that we're seeing. So uh, it is difficult to analyze it in the sort of traditional way you would right, um, for previous elections. But, um, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times, right? Well, I never wanted to live in interesting times. So I've written before. <laughs> I quite, living in, quite like living in times of peace and prosperity. I, it's, a, it's a curse, remember. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly my point. But you don't get to choose. We don't get to choose it. No, that's um, very either true. way, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk with us and, and walk us through the both the legal side of this and the political side as best as possible. So uh, we'll absolutely have to have you back on in the near future as well. we'll always love having you on the show. Um, one of my favorite writers uh, who I respect quite a lot. So uh, what were people, uh, if they want to find out more about you, hear, hear more of your, your musings, your analysis, where can they do that? Well, uh, I write at National Review. I have a Twitter account, at Charles C.W. Cook. And I also have a podcast called The Charles C.W. Cook Podcast, very original title, uh, <laughs> which is on all major services and uh, has, a, has a fairly eclectic collection of guests. So I'd say those are the three, uh, three places. All right. Wonderful. Well, people should head over and check those out. Uh, I read all your stuff and, and listen to your podcast. So I recommend others do it as well, but, uh, that's all we've got for right now. We're going to head on over to the news update. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer, Jake Fogelman joined of course by reload founder, Stephen Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. How was uh, how was your weekend? And and did you do anything interesting lately? Go to the range or get a new gun or anything like that? Uh, so haven't gone to the range. I did get a new uh, sort of everyday carry accessory. I, I guess you could say. Um, I've sort of been persuaded by the John Koreas of the world that maybe having <laughs> a, a an OC spray or a pepper spray is not the worst idea in the world. Um, so I. I Finally, you know, after hearing him and, and other folks like that, you know, extol their virtues for a long time, I said, you know, you know, what the heck? I picked one up and I've actually uh, started carrying it every day. So added that to my my uh, public self-defense repertoire. Nice. Yeah. It's what, John has a saying for that, right? It's uh, something between a harsh word and a gun, basically. And that's exactly my thought process, right? It's like, you know, 
you're already not super likely to get into a deadly force encounter. Um, you're much more likely to get into a physical altercation where, where mm -hmm. something, obviously not a firearm, isn't required in those uh, cases. So it just sort of made sense to me. Plus, it's they're, they're not very expensive, so it's pretty... No. Uh, <laughs> like, like $5 for a good pepper spray. Right, yeah. So it's just not that tough, to, and they don't take up much space in your pocket. So if you're already someone that's inclined to carry tools like that, it's uh, just a really easy thing to add to, to your repertoire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Plus, it's almost never uh you know a big legal problem you can usually carry pepper spray most places in most jurisdictions um you know unless they have uh, you know unless it's a secure facility or something where they have right uh, uh you know magnetometers and all that stuff but which which brand did you get i use um i think saber is uh is what i get it's like it's i think john recommends that one often and it's like five dollars on amazon <laughs> I was going to say Saber and Palm are the two that I saw. I just chose Palm because I thought the canister looked smaller and it could it'd be less you know intrusive in my pocket. So I just went with that one. Mm. Uh, but yeah, Saber Red and, and Palm are the two that I see that get touted the most. Yeah, Saber Red's what I carry myself. Um, yeah, I mean, and and it's what I have my my girlfriend carry. Too, yeah, so I got one she... for my girlfriend as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's another thing too. Like uh, you know if the if you if if you don't want to carry a firearm or you live somewhere where it's very difficult to legally do that, uh, which is an issue for my, my girlfriend. She's works in DC. She takes Metro. You, uh, it's difficult to get the DC permit, not impossible, but, uh, more difficult than Virginia. And it's very, you know, they limit you pretty significantly on where you can carry. Um, and then also you can't carry on the Metro in DC in Virginia. You can, uh, because it's a DC specific law which apparently no one has ever been prosecuted under, which is why you can't challenge it. You have no standing. That was, there was a recent case uh, litigating all this, which makes no sense to me, but um, I am not a federal judge. So uh, not, not at this point, at least. And um, yeah. So if you can't carry a gun, oftentimes you can carry permit uh, there. You can sorry. You can carry pepper spray, which is definitely better than nothing. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and like you, and it's perfect for those situations where like, like John says, between where, uh, you know, verbal confrontation is the solution and deadly forces, which there's a lot of stuff yeah. that ha can happen to you in between those two scenarios. Um, and so, you know, if you're carrying a gun and you don't carry some sort of less lethal or, or, you know, a deterrent an OC spray of some sort or whatever else, uh, you know, you, heck, you might find yourself reaching for a gun when it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the big things in my thought process, too, is there's no sort of intermediate step to take there. If like the only tool you have on you is a firearm, you could easily get yourself into some pretty hot legal yeah. trouble in those scenarios. So it just one another thing to cover your bases. Um, yeah. And like you were saying, you're much more likely to run into some scenario where it's not deadly force, yeah. but uh, deadly force isn't justified. But some sort of force maybe uh it's just it's just like carrying medical supplies or having medical training it's sort of the same idea like you might need that if you get into uh, a deadly force altercation but also you're probably just likely to run into uh, some situation in your life that requires some sort of medical knowledge um you're probably much more likely to run into that than you are a deadly force scenario yeah. Um, and, but and if you're going to carry a gun around on you because you are concerned, you may run into a deadly force scenario that it is something that's absolutely uh, a real possibility. Um, why not also prepare for the things that are even more likely to happen to you? Yeah, no, that's exactly my thought process. And I can confirm after a week of carrying every day, it's totally doable. It's not one of those things yeah. where it's a burden on your life to do. So I can officially recommend it to people out there. Yeah, I just put it in my pocket. It's not really not a hard thing to do uh, as far as as far as carrying some sort of uh, you know defense implement goes it's pretty pretty low uh, low effort I would say yeah but that's, uh, what that's about, great I would say what about you didn't you uh, just do some some fun stuff at the range uh, this past weekend yeah actually during the week as uh, well oh. the only perks of working for yourself is that you can make your own hours and uh, if you want to go to the range in the middle of the day, you can, uh, you know, you usually 
to give up your nine to five and work for yourself, you also often end up working 24 seven, but uh, this is <laughs> one of the limited things that you get to do is make your own hours. And I, I, so I went to arrange with a friend and, um, yeah, I got to do some shooting, uh, shot the three, six, five X macro and the, the three twenty X five, which, you know, these, these gun companies and their naming schemes, uh, <laughs> it's always, I think Smith and Wesson's the only one who has it figured out, at least as far as semi-automatics go. Uh, you know, their M&P line is just like, it's full-size 9mm, 9mm compact. <laughs> you know, they don't throw in random numbers for no reason. Right. But those two guns, regardless, are very, very fun to shoot and very accurate. And so I was very happy with the the 365X macro, which is my carry gun. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't had any issues, by the way, for those following along with this, my carry saga with the um the red dot that comes with that gun from the factory the romeo was it romeo zero elite i believe is the one that i have i also got a romeo one for the 320 x5 uh, both of those have held up really well uh, ever since i replaced the battery on the the one for the 365 x macro which that was pretty uh disappointing that it died that uh, that fast uh, i think it died within like a month of first buying it but since then it hasn't given me any issues and so i'm hoping that it was just a battery problem maybe that particular model sat around for a while um i don't know that was that's the only real downside i've seen with the the red dot so far it is does make it a little bit easier to shoot especially once you get used to using the red dot and you can kind of ignore the the iron sights because that can be hard to do at first um but I think it's an advantage in the long run if you're going to be shooting under stress in a defensive situation. So um been happy with that. I also, by the way, my friend brought a uh, an MP5 that he owns uh, and probably one of the most interesting configurations that I've seen, right? Because, uh, you know, the MP5 is famous as a sub gun, right, from the 80s. Uh, and they're probably one of the more popular and affordable class four full autos out there, you know, that yeah. people own as civilians, uh, probably one of the cheaper ways to get into that field. You don't have to pay the, the price of a McLaren to buy one of those. They're, they're more like the price of a, uh, a used Honda. Maybe. Yeah. I was going to say cheap is relative here. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, they're, uh, they used to be something like 10, 10k to get into but i think they're probably more now i imagine that whole market is way up like everything else uh, sure. since inflation hit us but um interestingly his was not a class four uh, but it also wasn't the more affordable easier to buy 16 inch barrel version either right you see those around too uh, so you see a lot thompson's have that now the semi-automatic 16 inch barrel thompson's are relatively popular and uh from what arrow i think Aero precision makes them um and you have is it Aero precision? what whoever um he actually the most fascinating thing about this was that he so he i guess he bought a conversion uh there's a dude who makes conversions of these guns where you can import the parts and then he can make you a, an sbr semi-auto like it's not a class four it's not full auto it's semi-automatic but it has the short barrel on it and i have to say after shooting that gun i'm really only ever shot that in full auto right because that's why people own them right usually um and it's fun to shoot in full auto there's a lot of blowback a lot of gas gets in your face but uh still a lot of fun it's a nine millimeter right sub gun those are all those are all pretty fun but his the semi-auto version that he's got, yeah, you got to get a tax stamp for it still, like a class four, but you don't have to pay whatever they're going for now, 15K, 20K. I don't know what they would be. Um, you know, you're, you're maybe paying $2,000, $3,000 for one. And honestly, uh, shooting it is super smooth in semi-auto, very accurate at, you know, home defense distances. And I, and it's light, so it kind of makes me feel like that's 
a really ideal home defense gun. That was the takeaway that I had from shooting it. It's like, this is a this is a gun that I think is better than a nine millimeter pistol for home defense, right? Because you know it's bigger, obviously, but you can store it in your house. Not that hard, and it's more accurate. It's easier to control, easier to shoot than a nine millimeter handgun, and it's also easier. It's lighter than an AR or a pump action shotgun, uh, or even a you know some sort of pistol caliber carbine, right? Uh, shorter barrel. Um, it, it kind of checked all the boxes I could see for a home defense gun. It's great in corners, you know, going around tight spaces because it's got the shorter barrel. That's the whole idea of this gun in the first place, right? These, these sub guns. But, um, but the semi-automatic, you know, shooting in a semi-automatic is super accurate. So and, uh, it's And it's got the most... You forgot the most important factor, the cool factor. Mm. It <laughs> is cool, legit, yes. You have a legit HK uh, MP5 that's uh, an SBR. It is fun to smack the... Uh, that's right. The bolt. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's fun to smack the charging handle on that thing. It, it just is. It's like uh, smacking the bolt release on an AR or something. Right. There's, there's a certain... Or pumping a pump-action shotgun. There, there are certain... Or doing the lever action on a lever action. There, there are certain things in the firearm world, the mechanical side, that it's just fun. But yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I really legitimately thought that was a high quality home defense gun, especially for a smaller person or, or a woman. Um, like it's because it's lighter, it's super controllable. It's easy to move around in tight spaces and it shoots nine millimeter instead of like five, five, six or something like that. So it's, it's a bit less concern there about overpenetration. Um, although really all these rounds will still overpenetrate your drywall. Like it's not really doing much to stop any reasonable self-defense round anyway. But regardless, uh, you know, that's what it struck me. And it's just sort of unfortunate that because of the way our gun laws work, that sometimes aren't terribly uh, logical. Um, you, you really can't buy these as home defense guns, at least not in that configuration. And they get a lot more unwieldy if you're putting a 16 inch barrel on something that's supposed to have like a, maybe a, a, I don't know what an MP5's normal barrel length is, but eight inches maybe. Right. And so, you know, like half of a 16 inch barrel. So it's, it's just kind of unfortunate that you can't actually buy something like that for, uh, in, in a practice, I mean, you can, right? <laughs> it shouldn't, you can go out and do the process. You can form one and you can do all this stuff. It's just a huge uh, cost add and time add. And there's a bunch of other things that come along with owning an NFA item, like telling the ATF when you're crossing state lines with it and stuff, stuff like that. I, it's not impossible. It's just it adds an extremely, um, uh, it adds another layer of annoyance to owning a firearm is, is what, what, what I'll say. And it's not a popular thing to do, obviously. And it's not something where if your average person is going to walk into a gun store and be able to walk out with an MP5 that's semi-auto, but short barrel. That's just not a common thing to be able to do. It's possible. It's just not common because of the way the, the laws work. Anyway, the experience was a lot of fun. And that was my main takeaway was, was this bit about our, our gun laws, because of course that is, that's what I do for a living, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but so what, what do we, uh, you know, all that aside, what do we got going on news-wise uh, this week? We actually just, uh, I guess we, we have some news. I mentioned this on the main interview, but the Supreme Court was supposed to hand down its, uh, presumably was going to hand down its decision in the uh, Biden ghost gun ban uh, appeal. Uh, you know, the, 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 the rule, the ATF rule is blocked and DOJ wants the Supreme Court to issue a stay or take up the case directly. And they had until 5 p.m. on Friday, they'd issued a stay, an administrative stay, Lito had, Justice Lito, and that ex is set to expire soon here as we're filming. Actually, I guess it already has, but they, uh, instead of doing anything with it, Alito just issued another stay until next Tuesday. So I don't know. They didn't do their homework, I guess. The justices got tired and wanted to go home for the week. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it was 
and they waited until like 4.30 to... I was going to say, sort of anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, so we, we waited to film this. And um, I, I don't know why the justices don't think of, uh, you know, poor reporters like us who have to sit around and wait That's for right. to do these Won't things. Well, someone think but, of the journalists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, so obviously we don't have any real update on that. Um, we will, of course, follow that when it comes through next Tuesday. But we do have some other news, Yes. Yeah, that's right. So uh, first, we'll start with some of the links in the newsletter that folks can check out by signing up for that newsletter. But um, we got some good reporting from Fox News, who've been following sort of the fallout from the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was the federal gun law that Joe Biden signed last summer. And the uh, provision of that bill is being interpreted by his Department of Education to uh, preclude funding for school hunting and archery programs. So there's been some mm -hmm. political backlash over that. Yeah, the, there's several Democrats who've come out and criticized the president for doing for interpreting the law this way. Right. Uh, you had Manchin, Cinema, and Tester all say that this is not what the provision was meant to do. There's a provision in the law that basically says you can't use funding to uh, train people on how to use firearms. And it seems clearly to be targeted at uh, not teaching, not using it for training teachers to carry guns in schools. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like sort of a compromise aspect in there. They put in a bunch of funding for school safety upgrade programs, but they don't want it to go to te training teachers to carry firearms in schools. So that was they included this provision. And now the Department of Education is uh, taking that provision and interpreting it to mean that you can't use federal funds to um, do any sort of gun training for anyone or uh, dangerous weapon training, actually. So it extends beyond guns. That's where the archery thing comes in. And uh, that has upset a number of Republican senators, but now also Democratic senators. Yeah, it's interesting to see the, the political fallout, especially I think it's worth noting we're heading into an election season with all three of these senators that are up for re-election. So mm -hmm. worth noting. Uh, but right. we have another story out of uh, Reason Magazine about uh, gun owners in New Zealand being doxxed and for, not for the first time, thanks to a leak uh, of record keeping that the government ke keeps. Uh, all, gun owners there are required to be registered with the government, of course. So uh, this is not an uncommon occurrence in places that have such uh, records of gun owners. Yeah, this is uh, New Zealand is kind of hitting all of the common uh, pro-gun talking points about why people don't want a registry right <laughs> because your information can get leaked one as this story indicates and then obviously new zealand also uses that registry to confiscate firearms from people uh in the wake of uh, a mass shooting in that country so um yeah they, they they're sort of uh hitting for the cycle on this point <laughs> and it does remind me though of a story that we broke last year right where california uh, which has similar registration requirements, um, also just leaked all of the information about who has a concealed carry permit in, in the state, uh, their address and their names, their professions, oftentimes, including judges, uh, law enforcement officials. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, something that happens fairly regularly. Yeah, especially when you're talking about you know, detailed record keeping. Um, but, but speaking of California, this brings us to our last link uh, in the newsletter. Uh, we have a final ruling from a federal judge. Uh, it's, it's funny, it's been three years now, but litigating the COVID era restrictions on gun stores. So they, Ventura County, California specifically, did not allow gun stores to be open as part of their emergency orders. And we have a federal judge now that says that that's okay under the Bruin test. Yeah, and they used that same reasoning that we've seen time and again here to uphold, uh, mostly to uphold hardware bans, you know, Saltman's bans and magazine limits, things like that, where basically uh, the argument goes that there are there's a modern problem that wasn't didn't exist at the founding. Usually, it's mass shootings. In this case, the judge pointed to the COVID pandemic, um, although I would imagine that the founders dealt with plagues and pandemics as well. But regardless, uh, she pointed to this modern uh, issue and therefore, you know, was, um, that allowed her to analogize on a looser basis to 
the founding era's gun laws. And she this this was uh, sort of a more half-hearted attempt at this particular reasoning, I think. Um, you've seen this before. It's happened in the Oregon case as well, where instead of really trying to find anything that was an, even a remotely <laughs> similar gun law, she kind of just listed all the gun laws that existed, gunpowder regulations, um, you know, uh, different bans on charity laws, basically. There's kind of just throwing everything at the wall and saying gun laws existed, therefore they're all analogous to this total shutdown of all gun stores and ranges during the pandemic that California did. So uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting case. That's uh, And it really rolls into the next story we're going to talk about too, uh, because there was, there was also a, a federal judge in Connecticut that upheld the state's Sullivan's ban and magazine limits under very similar reasoning, right? Yeah, so we have a federal ruling uh, denying uh, a preliminary injunction. So the gun rights group in this case uh, requested a preliminary injunction on both the assault weapon ban and their ban on magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. Um, and like you said, it's sort of become the go-to blueprint for upholding hardware bans in this case. We've seen it happen at least four other times now by, by federal judges under similar circumstances where they say, well, you know, the, sec the plain text of the Second Amendment says this, uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court previously said in Heller and Bruin that uh, guns that are in common use are covered under that plain text. But if you look at the empirical evidence, uh, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds and AR-15s are not actually used commonly for self-defense. And so, therefore, the plain text doesn't cover them and they can be banned legally. Um, and that's almost verbatim what this federal judge ruled in this case. And we've seen it you know, in a few cases in the past. So this has clearly become the go-to blueprint for regions, but more specifically judges looking for ways to uphold these, these hardware bans. Yeah. Yeah. You got those two arguments side by side oftentimes in these cases where uh, either they argue the, 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 the affected guns or accessories aren't covered by the plain text or, or uh, that, you know, there's some the, the development of new firearms technology has led to a modern yeah. problem that wasn't foreseen by the founders, and therefore they can, you can use a broader analogy. Yeah, those yeah, are sort the, of the two main arguments that you see now. I would say the judge in this case ruled that first part that, oh, it's not covered by the plain text. But even mm -hmm. if I did decide that it was covered yeah. by the plain text, this is how it would happen. Well, it's an unprecedented social concern. And so therefore, yep. I can loosely analogize to concealed carry bans on Bowie knives to cover flat out possession bans on AR-15s and magazines. Yeah, that's what you'll usually see, right? In, in a lot of these cases where they'll just start with the idea that these weren't these aren't in common use for well, what, actually what you're seeing a lot of is not, not that they're not in common use, but specifically that they're not in common use for self-defense. Right. Um, that is, that is what the, they'll try to narrow the common use standard to that, even though that's not really what Heller said or, or even uh, Miller, which is where Heller got the common use standard from, but um, they try to make it a much more narrow decision about whether these are in common use for self-defense and not even just that people believe they're buying these guns for self-defense, but that there actually is yep. evidence that you fired more than 10, 10 rounds commonly in self-defense shootings. That's what most of these judges have, have done with the magazine uh, restrictions. For instance, yep. you saw that in Oregon as well, where they argue uh, based on very limited databases of uh, public reports about self-defense shootings uh, if they don't mention that more than 10 rounds were shot fired by the uh, the defender, then the judge concludes that it's not common for magazines that hold more than 10 rounds to be used in self-defense um, or at least be necessary for self-defense is yeah. sort of the the idea they're getting at with this. So and then and then, yeah, they'll do what you mentioned where it's like. Okay, even even if that doesn't hold up, I'm going to go to the Bruin test anyway, and I'm going to use this this reasoning that is has become very popular with how I get to a looser analogy. Yeah, no, and it's a key distinction too because the it's not just in common use for self defense, but under some sort of empirical 
use of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Like it's not right. good enough that gun owners say, I bought this for self-defense. They have to, as you said, sort of pull from public research or, or some other source to show that they were actually used in self-defense. Right. right. Which is, again, also different from how Heller interpreted that whole concept because, um, you know, they, they use the idea that people believe handguns are, uh, that they're purchasing handguns out of the belief that they'll be used for self-defense, not Heller didn't cite to like a statistical study right. of how often people use handguns in self-defense. Um, it, it cited more like polling about why people buy the, say they buy guns or say they buy handguns. So, uh, you know, pretty different application and one that I would be very surprised to see stand up at the Supreme court if it makes it there though. Right. That's the, I guess the tension in a lot of these things is, uh, will the Supreme Court take up a case like this? It's there's a we have every indication that they should or would or are interested in doing that because they GVR'd several cases in this vein, right? There was the Maryland yeah. assault weapons ban case and the New Jersey magazine uh, restriction case, both of which the law had been upheld by the lower courts. The court granted, vacated the lower court ruling and then remanded those cases back down to the lower courts to rule uh, in accordance to the new Bruin standard. But, uh, you know, it has only been about a year. So uh, I know people want to a lot of gun rights advocates want to see things move faster, but that's not really how the court operates. Um, So, well, you know, it's an open question of whether they're going to come back to this. It seems likely, but it hasn't happened yet. Right. Yeah. We'll still take some more time for the, the cases to percolate. Um, and then the last story that we're going to talk about this week is actually one you reported on. Um, there's a averted tragedy in Memphis uh, at a Jewish school uh, where a hardened school security system combined with you know quick acting police, uh, by all measures, looks like saved what could have been a, a, another tragic incident at a school. If you want to tell us what happened. Yeah, this one had a... Uh a positive outcome, or at least as positive as you could hope for in this situation. Um, a, a man it turned out, it sounds as though he was perhaps a former student at this school. So uh, the authorities there don't believe it was um, um, like a religiously motivated attack, it wasn't a hate crime necessarily. Um, but regardless, this, this man showed up at this school in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Hebrew Academy, where carrying a gun, he got there's pictures of him from the school, from this incident where he's uh, got through one door, but apparently was not able to get inside of the school where staff and children were. Um, and then after being frustrated by that, he fired off shots outside the building and then fled um, and was later confronted by local law enforcement. Uh, where he got in a shootout with an officer and was uh, wounded in that shootout and is now in the hospital. And he's been he's been charged with five different crimes, including, um, you know, assaulting a first responder, uh, attempted second degree murder, carrying a weapon on school property, things of that nature. So uh, it appears that police, the police chief in Memphis said that uh, he believes that the work of the officers prevented a mass shooting in this situation. Um, and then I would say also, of course, the the school's preparation for potential violence is probably what really pr- stopped this from being so bad, being a terrible incident, right? Um, they obviously had lockdown procedures that they were able to put in place immediately. We don't know all of the details yet, but we do know that this school is part of a larger network um, of, of Jewish institutions that rely on a secure, there's a security network that they all rely on and, and share information and have a set of procedures that they all abide by uh, and includes things like video monitoring of access points and uh, having close contact with local law enforcement in the case of potential threats. And it appears in this case that worked that they were able to protect those kids by employing this, what seems to be a fairly unique and well-organized security structure that 
may well serve as a template for what other schools can do in these situations. Yeah, certainly. It seems to vindicate, as you said, when done well, the whole school hardening approach to school security, which has become sort of a, you know, political battle in some regards in our current debate. But it it does go go to show it's a good case study that, you know, when done properly, you can quite potentially save lives and prevent tragedy. So it's definitely definitely a big story. And one, I'm sure people will be watching from, you know, all across the country. Absolutely. And it's it's definitely one that uh, I think probably deserves more attention than it's gotten. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the news outside of this, but uh, it's something that I think we'll we'll continue to follow and, and hopefully try to get more details on exactly what the the process was that worked in this case. Um, you know, as much as can be shared publicly, at least I'm sure they don't want to give away every detail of how their security protocols work. But uh, sure. the, the broad view, uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get and um, and see implemented elsewhere. But uh, we will definitely be following up on that and. Uh, doing our best to um, try and uh, uncover exactly what makes this program different from others and how people can implement it elsewhere. Uh, You know, obviously the Jewish community faces a lot of uh, heightened threats, uh, disproportionate amount of threats and violence, um, you know, based on their religion. And so they've clearly developed um, these security protocols uh, in, in a way that um, perhaps other communities haven't. And so they probably have a lot of really good insight to share, I think, with the rest of us. And this is a perfect example that can be used for that. So, um, yeah, we will absolutely stay on top of that. But that is all we've got for this week. So um, if you want to read more about some of the things we talked about, you can head over to reload.com. You can buy a membership. That's what helps uh helps us stay afloat, helps us do this reporting. And of course, it will also get you exclusive access to all of our analysis pieces and um, hundreds of pieces that you will just simply can't get anywhere else. You also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show as uh, in a member segment, which is one of my favorite segments. And, uh, you know, if you're not ready to make that jump and buy a membership today, you can, of course, help by sharing this episode or rating it um, on whatever app you're listening to it on, uh, you can, uh, go ahead and give it us a thumbs up on YouTube, anything of that nature. Uh, that stuff all helps immensely. The podcast has grown tremendously over the last two years, and we're hoping to keep that momentum up and, uh, yeah, we need your help for that. So please do what you're able to, uh, but we will be back again real soon. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>